0: Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner podcast,
1: a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, this is Till Luca. There are very few muscles that have as much mystery or controversy as the SOAS. In this episode, Whitney and I are resharing one of our most popular episodes from last year entitled Psoas Work. Is it safe? Is it necessary? Be sure to download the handout and enjoy the conversation. Hi, this is Til Luca. When I was looking for a publisher for a book I wanted to write, I was lucky enough to have had two offers, one from a huge international India conglomerate and the other from Handspring, a small publisher in Scotland run by four great people. I'm glad I chose Handspring, as not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share, a advanced Myofascial technique series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness.
0: Thanks, Till. Uh, and I'm Whitney Lowe, and Handspring has a new instructional webinar series called Moved to Learn. It's a regular series, each of 45-minute segments, featuring some of their amazing authors, including a recent one from Till. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out. And be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. Thanks, Handspring, for supporting the podcast. So, uh, hey, Till, how's it going? Uh, We were on a little bit of a hiatus here from our recording. It's good to be back doing this once again.
1: Good to be back with you, Whitney. Yeah, we had a... We had an episode off, and that's always good. You know, I, have a, yeah. I had an idea for today. I thought we could, like, take turns muting the mic, so just one of us at a time has a mic. What do you think?
0: Uh, you know, <laughs> or maybe give somebody else control to be able to That'll mute us, you know, at, their, at their own whim. <laughs> so, I like that. I think we behave pretty well here, so we can probably do okay with that, our, our mic, well, mic meeting. We'll behavior. give it a try. Yeah. yeah so. You had some
1: interesting questions though you thought why don't we talk about the soas yeah
0: yeah i thought uh we've had a number of uh, people ask for this and this has been one of our hotly requested topics so i thought uh, hey it's about time let's let's do this so as we don't go on any longer without addressing oh, it boy, they, that? So
1: they, okay the jokes have started yeah. already <laughs> right. yes. so you said you so you uh proposed this because it had been requested any other reason you want to talk about this well
0: so yeah I think it's a I think it's a somewhat controversial topic and there's a lot of rich stuff to dive into here so um I thought this would be great and and I know you've uh, worked a lot in this region. And I know, especially with your background in uh, structural integration work, there's a lot of emphasis on this. And, you know, I've seen a lot in the world of orthopedics and the stuff that I've been doing. And I think uh, I'd like to sort of see and share some of our perspectives of, of where current thinking is uh, with everybody about about this. Yeah. And
1: I, I appreciated you bringing it up and I look forward to hearing what you have to say. I should mention at this yeah. point, listeners, if you want, you can download a handout that has a brief outline of our points we're talking about today, and then some extra materials. Uh, I'll give the link now. It's also on the, the podcast description and on Whitney's side and my side, but the link is a-t.tv slash ttp dash so as. So that's a-t.tv slash ttp dash so as for the free handout that'll kind of outline what we're talking about today. Sounds good. All right. So,
0: um, in terms of starting here, um, I'm just curious uh, your thoughts about this. You know, there's, if you look in the world of uh, massage, bodywork, and manual therapy, you know, lots of the readings, the talkings, the discussions, there is all this mystique and mystery surrounding the psoas. It seems to be kind of a, a muscle of intense fascination for so many people, um, and I'm kind of curious. You know, why do you think that is? Uh, like, what's, what's with the psoas? What's the big deal here?
1: Well, okay, I'll give you my opinion. I want to hear yours, of course. Thanks. But uh, why, why the fascination with the psoas? You said in your little notes here, why is it the holy grail muscle? I like that. It, I mean, maybe, yeah. uh, you know, Ida Rolf gave it a lot of importance. Uh, for in, in her structural model, she really felt like it had an important role in lumbar, Uh, lengthening you could say especially but I don't you know there's some specific reasons maybe to the structural integration approach but I think why in manual therapy in general and massage therapy maybe it's because it's so deep some people say it's the deepest muscle maybe that Mm -hmm. would you know uh, represent some sort of acme of achievement if you can work on the deepest possible muscle Maybe because it yeah. takes, you know, because it can be, and, and classically, there's some pretty intense sodas work. It's kind of rite of passage, you know, a long yeah. ways. I don't know. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I uh, am in agreement with you there. And I think it's kind of interesting. I see this as a place where perhaps some different uh, things converge, hmm. um, where uh, the, the biomechanical model. So for example, those that are really oriented toward a, a complex, uh, me- mechanistic sort of view of the way the body functions, the psoas is a complex and challenging muscle, uh, in that realm. It and also, like you said, for those that view the body more from a sort of uh, holistic or even spiritual aspect, the fact that it's deep and mysterious, um, and does all this other stuff, um, makes it sort of uh, this muscle of mystery. So it's kind of like something that everybody can point to as having a great degree of uh, pertinent uh, focus or interest maybe. So um,
1: No, you're right. There is there is some awesome. sort of mystical dimension to it, at least in some yeah. models. Uh, Ida, prob- Ida probably had some of that around that, but Liz Cook also has called it the muscle of the soul. It's mm-hmm. done a lot of... Uh, you know, writing around how important it is. It has some key roles in some trauma therapies, uh, body-centered trauma therapy, where it's thought to be one of the deepest core structures that react to trauma in that model. And I don't know if those are evidence-based or more just, you know, narratives that people are using therapeutically. But no, mm-hmm. it, it does seem to have a special role in that sense. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I think so. And, and so for us as manual therapists, I think there's a lot of... Uh, You know, this is another one of those places, I saw this a great deal um, when I was teaching at entry-level massage training programs and also in continuing education workshops, lots of uh, uh, people coming to this area feeling a great deal of trepidation and uncertainty about what they're doing here. And I think the difficulty of, uh, for example, because it is such a deep muscle, it's, it's difficult to access, and there are a number of sensitive structures around it, which we'll get to in a little bit, talking about that in some more detail, makes it harder or more challenging for people to feel confident and comfortable in what they're doing so i think that's probably been one of the other things that's added a lot of sort of mystique and and, um, trepidation around
1: uh, dealing with it for a lot of folks yeah it's in the belly too for goodness sake it's behind your belly it's like a sensitive area there right yeah
0: so um yeah so let's let's explore that in a little bit more detail. So just again, um, I just so we sort of lay some groundwork here, I think it might be beneficial to remind people what we're talking about uh, with the uh, iliopsoas being really a muscle of two component parts, the psoas major uh-huh. um, and the iliacus coming together and sharing uh, distal attachment sites. So the psoas major coming off of the lumbar vertebra and the iliacus coming off of the inside of the pelvic bowl and then the two blending together and attaching on the lesser trochanter of the femur in their distal attachment. But I think when we talk about psoas work, uh-huh. most people are probably referring to psoas major. Um, would you agree that that's that's yeah. what most people focus on there. Yeah, that's
1: right. It's it's the lumbar portion of that complex, you could say, mm-hmm. which I guess that about half of people includes a psoas minor if you really, you know, want to get you know nerdy about the whole thing. But yeah, that's, that's, that's great. That's a great reminder. And it's essentially on the sides and front of the lumbar bodies. Mm -hmm. And so that's the place that you're targeting is behind the belly. Yeah, right. And
0: so, you know, for us even looking at, I want to, to talk a little bit about, some of the things that we hear about the soas in terms of why we should work on it. And for okay. example, some of that has to do with, you know, its role in certain things. You know, it's often given a great deal of, of um, importance in things like pelvic alignments, you know, anterior pelvic tilts, or, or some other things like leg length discrepancies. And uh, some of these things have been questioned recently, and I want to kind of look into that just a little bit. So, um, let's just back up and kind of go over one of the, some of the common things that we see, yeah. uh, and hear about that. Cause I know, uh, one of the most common ones is the role of the iliopsoas in producing anterior pelvic tilt. So, um, you know, shall we maybe go over like, how does that happen? Um, you know, how sure. does that actually
1: occur? How does that happen, Whitney?
0: Yeah. So, when a muscle contracts, it's bringing its two ends closer together. Um, and there's a, a discrepancy or a, a sort of distinction oftentimes when we look at motion in the body, um, especially with the extremities of uh, what's called open chain position and closed chain position with certain movements. So, an open chain position is where the distal end of a limb or segment is free in, in the air. So, for example, if you're kicking a ball, that would be considered an open chain movement because oh, your lower leg, oh, the, the distal leg. Yeah. lower leg is freely moving through the ground, uh, through the space. Gotcha. So uh, the iliopsoas, when it's acting in an open chain fashion, is predominantly a hip flexor and bringing the femur up towards the abdomen in hip flexion. So that's its primary function yeah. in an open chain position. Which,
1: by the way, is like how a quadruped uses the psoas in running. Mm-hmm. They use it to pull the leg f- through pull the leg forward exactly to get ready for another yeah. thrust
0: yeah now obviously when we're standing uh, as since we're a bipedal organism that stands on the ground when we're standing this is a closed chain position and you can no longer lift the distal end of that extremity up because the body weight is is in contact with the ground and at that point the psoas has a tendency also to, as it gets hypertonic or tight or in the contraction process, pull its two ends closer together. And since the distal end is rigidly fixed to the ground, it will have a tendency to pull on its more superior end, which is the lumbar vertebra. And so the idea for a lot of people's biomechanical analysis is that the psoas then in the upright position contributes to bringing the lumbar vertebra forward in attempting more forward flexion of the lumbar vertebra. And the person may sort of react to that by ch- attempting to kind of lean back. And that produces the increased lumbar lordosis and a subsequent anterior pelvic tilt. So that's kind of the explanation of its potential role in that sort of postural challenge. So, so uh, well said, well, I should
1: say that is the uh, well said classical kinesiological explanation of its ac- action on the lumbar spine. And so then on the pelvis.
0: There is,
1: interestingly enough, there is a historical debate within the Rolf Institute, when the Rolf World, world, where Ida seemed to imply that it did the opposite, that it was actually a lumbar extensor and that its contraction would help someone flatten their lumbars. Uh And so people uh, pretty much took that on faith. And there have been some very heated debates to the point of, of people almost being fired and excommunicated around this very topic. But I think there is widespread agreement that explanation that you just gave is the conventional kinesiological function of the psoas, although you'll hear the opposite mm-hmm. in some schools.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, there is some controversy, too, around its potential contributions to other motions in the hip and pelvis especially the motions of abduction and uh, lateral and or medial rotation oh boy. but boy. Uh, are I we think, going there cuz i mean i don't think yeah. i think we should do you had something in your uh in your book yeah. in the writing that you have about like basically yeah it might contribute a little bit of that but it's not worth um considering because it's so minimal so i think uh, i'm safe uh, or i'm happy to leave it there at, at that maybe point, the you
1: know. so as is the most argued about muscle in the body maybe that's what it is yeah and there's so yeah be, there's yeah. so many debates about it, its function and we're talking about now why you would work it. with the rationales were i see that you flagged in there should we even work it those kind of debates are in the background so yeah the yeah. role you said uh, let's go back to the the biomechanics the role of it is thought to be at least in most points of view that if it contracts it pulls your pelvis anteriorly and so that if you have a big lordosis or have a big anterior pelvis tilt work the so as to help it be longer and help correct those things in, in quotes
0: yeah yeah and i would also say you know i've come across a number of times some uh, descriptions from practitioners talking about this ascribing Certain things to it that biomechanically don't really make sense to me, and I have a difficult time sort of swallowing. Uh, things like the psoas being a predominant contributor to a leg length discrepancy, for example. Pulls the leg up. Um, sure, why not? Yeah, pulls the leg up. A uh, uh, little bit of difficulty in that when you look at physics, um, because it's kind of hard to pull your leg up off the ground when you're standing on it. So, Every leg, um, well, most yeah. legs
1: reach the floor, you say?
0: That's, yeah, that's right. Um, so some of those things need a little bit more biomechanical scrutiny for um, uh, us thinking practitioners to to uh, buy that.
1: I well, think. even some yeah. of the classical biomechanical explanations like uh, anterior pelvis, I'm a, I, I have some, I'm, I could say I'm agnostic. I don't know. Probably because there's so many debates around that, that means it's not a clear significant effect or consistent effect maybe
0: that's mm-hmm. why it's so easy to argue yeah. about
1: because it's not obvious and universal
0: yeah and we have the potential problem of you know have we ever necessarily accurately demonstrated a true cause effect relationship that extends beyond just a correlation um you know right. that's an that's right. important, uh, that important consideration is that remembering well we may have some people with you know what might appear to be iliopsoas tightness, and they have an anterior pelvic tilt, but do we in fact know for sure that that's what caused it? Um, we're still, Good you know, not quite there. Yeah, yet. <laughs> there was a great—I um, saw this a couple years ago. I'd like, I'd love to remember where I saw this. A uh, discussion of learning how to make the distinction between causation and correlation. Yeah, because a lot of times two things will occur together. Yes. Um, but that doesn't mean they necessarily cause each other. Like there is some, uh, they, uh, did this study where they would graph two, you know, the, the occurrence of two particular items on a graph and see, you know, when did those two things overlap and have a graph that looked very similar. Uh-huh. And there was something like a, a really clear exact correlation between people born in September and people that were killed by donkeys or something like that. What's you your birthday? Uh, so me? my birthday's in December. Okay. You're safe. You're so good. I'm safe. Yeah. Me too. So I'm good. Uh, But anyway, just keeping in mind that a lot of times we may see uh, some of these related things throughout the body, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there is a cause-effect relationship.
1: Or that even just because a muscle, like you said, does contract and pull its two ends closer together, that if the two ends are closer together, that muscle is tight and needs to be lengthened. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you were saying leg length discrepancy, maybe that's not so plausible. Um, yeah. any other structural challenges you want to bring in there? I got one, by the way, Heather. Yeah. I'm thinking of scoliosis Uh huh. where, uh, if you look at an anatomical picture, it's pretty easy to imagine how one side of one psoas, say being tighter could pull the lumbars into a curve that the other side wouldn't be able to balance. So, it's, yeah. uh, so for a long time, actually, it so looks so obvious that for a long time, the, the standard treatment for idiopathic adolescent scoliosis was to sever the size tendon at the front of the hip, surgically cut it apart. I saw you had said something
0: about when in your articles. I thought it was fascinating. I hadn't ever heard that before. And so uh, that seems to me a pretty extreme, uh, extreme kind of attempt to address that.
1: You know? And it's one of those cases yeah. of causation versus correlation because when finally someone did a Prospective study to see if people were different after the surgery, there was no average improvement in people between, and maybe, you know, worse. It had one as cut. So that yeah. Yeah, fell out of favor in the 50s. But up until that point, yeah, that was thought to be, oh, look at that. That muscle's short. Let's cut it. That's going to make their skull gases better. Um, it didn't. Yeah. It didn't really.
0: Yeah. Right. Well, you know, that also does reflect what was so much the dominant sort of mechanistic model. Um, during that time period for all kinds of things of uh, looking at the body predominantly as a machine that just, you know, we could cut things, screw things in, you know, just plug things in, and, and uh, the mechanics would be very much like a piece of machinery. And we, of course, now know that doesn't uh, often work the same way. Yeah. But uh, back to your thing about uh, scoliosis, let's, um, you know, looking at that uh, and sort of expanding that idea of scoliosis. I mean, the psoas is many times blamed for all kinds of uh, contributions to other types of back pain problems mm. um you know so what are your sort of thoughts ideas about the role of the psoas in in back pain
1: yeah i got myself i got two i'm of two minds one is that no i don't think uh the soas is necessarily a consistent cause of people's back pain i think it may be in some cases and the studies around that, just pulling this up from memory, and I can pull up a reference and put it in the show notes, but studies of I'll say PSOA's strength or SOAS, maybe it's cross-section, I think is what it was. as cross-sectional size in people with back pain was no different uh, on average. There were a few cases in this in this study of people with really severe back pain having smaller psoas, but that oh. doesn't establish correlation or cause at all. It could be that they they hurt so much they didn't move and their psoas got smaller. Yeah. So it's, it's the, the correlation has not been clearly demonstrated in a research fashion at all. In fact, the research suggests maybe it's not a significant contributor, you could say. Yeah. So yeah. that's the first mind. Uh, the second mind I have is that uh, I've had experiences with my own body and working with clients where the right kind of work with the soas helps the back feel a whole lot better. That's pretty clear empirical, uh, you know, evidence maybe experienced in my own limited sense. So there's times when some good work with the SOAS can really help a backache or back pain for sure.
0: Yeah. And so let me just um, pose the question that, of course, I think might depend on what the nature of that complaint was to begin with. What do you think is the um, um i just hesitate the word use the word mechanism but let's <laughs> the uh, what, do you, what do you suppose the, the rationale uh behind the success Why might did that be help? In, in those instances? Yeah, yeah
1: I mean back then I thought you know this I'm thinking of my, one of my first serious like disasters uh in my practice room where it was a whole disaster of a session the woman was in a lot of pain she couldn't get child care she showed up with her baby. I had to try to help her. The baby's crying, too, in the room. We're trying to work on her. I've been out of golfing things maybe a year or two. And um, it seemed to be helping, seemed to be feeling better in spite of the baby crying and everything else going on. But then when she tried to get up, her back just seized up. She just was in such a um,
0: uh-huh.
1: Yeah, And uh, I think I even had another client coming or something. I remember some time pressure on the situation, too. So in, I don't know where I even got the idea to try this, but I thought, okay, let's just try your psoas gently. And so I tried her psoas gently and lo and behold, that was the silver bullet. In that case, she, you know, pranced out, the baby's giggling and everyone lived happily ever after in that case. Mm. So I, yeah. and at that time I thought, okay, so this is, I'm pushing the lumbars back or I'm releasing the psoas to balance yeah. it out or, you know, those models that I was trained in. Anymore, I don't know. I, mean, I can think it's just as plausible to think that the intense, focused, careful, slow experience of having your SOAS gently worked could be resetting to an alarm response for it, for goodness sake. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, Maybe there's some yeah. other factors that work there too. Yeah.
0: Uh, I, would, I would think that, that certainly makes a great deal of sense, especially the more we kind of so understand the mechanics of what we are doing. We'll get into this in a little bit more detail here in a few minutes of what actually happens yeah. in the many different approaches where we where we do uh, attempt to do that. So, um, you know, you've mentioned some in your article, and I know this has been, you know, a fair amount of controversy. We talked about this both within the field um, at large, uh, our field and others as well about, you know, there's all this controversy around the iliopsoas and should we even attempt to do work on it because there's you know a lot of concerns about the sensitivity of structures in the area some other things around there so what are your current thoughts about that Um, like do you still advocate doing this a good bit or like what kind of situations do you find most beneficial in in doing that yeah
1: i'm more i'm way more cautious than i used to be i still Mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have the chapter about SOAS work in my book, and I'm going to include that in a handout, and I'm still talking about it. I have been mm-hmm. uh, the target of some criticism for that, and in fact, there was a one of our, one of our competitors, who shall remain nameless, took uh, this chapter when it was published as an article and substitute, took excerpts and then substituted other people's images from the internet of doing some fairly brutal sewing, so as work and saying hey this is why people should not be teaching so as work when actually, I wow. know it was kind of intense the point of the point of my whole article was we got to be really careful maybe there's some times and here's the hundred ways to be careful he took he yeah. Took one or two statements out of context in there and took other people's illustrations to say this is brutal. And again, the con- yeah, wow. I know the concerns are <laughs> the concerns are valid, and it's still every now and then will surface. Someone will send me that, Till, did you know that you're teaching something that you know? Okay, yeah, here, let me can you let me send you the article so you can read the whole context? Yeah, but uh, it's it's with let's say with a lot of caution, yes, I think mm-hmm. in, in the right you know, with someone with skill and the right kind of rapport and the right kind of circumstances, the right kind of uh, resilience in the client, because it's not for every client either, then sure, there, there can be times that this can be useful. Should we yeah. be cautious? Absolutely. And I'm certainly cautious now about even talking about service so work after that.
0: I don't doubt that. Yeah. So uh, it's maybe making me think that uh, maybe we need a podcast episode on, you know, digital piracy and, and ways in which you're, Work can be uh, sort of uh, taken uh, out misinterpreted, of context yeah. and because, uh, you know, I certainly think we've both had that uh, happen to us at different times here. Okay. So. What do you think? Yeah. You got
1: any thoughts on that? Should we be attempting to work it?
0: I do, and I have really changed my tune a lot on SOAS work a great deal over the years, um, and especially in recent years for a number of different reasons. Um, for me, uh, a lot of this began... After some discussions with a number of people who were doing significant cadaver dissections, mm-hmm. and talking about the incidence of uh, undiagnosed aortic aneurysms they were finding mm-hmm. in cadaver dissections, mm-hmm. and uh, I was reviewing a lot of the anatomy around what we're doing in the iliosacral region, and, and recognizing that you know in when terms of people talking about cautions they often talk about the aorta or the superior vena cava as precautions but you don't hear many people talking often about the external iliac artery and external external iliac vein which are the branches that come off of those major um, circulatory structures that lie almost directly over the top of the iliopsoas and Mm -hmm. when uh, people advocate techniques of getting in there and pressing on the iliopsoas, remembering that you are pressing through lots of different tissue layers before you contact that, um, it does seem feasible that in instances you could um, put pressure on those circulatory structures and cause a backflow of pressure in there and um, possibly cause a bursting of those uh, aneurysms. Um, And that has been reported um, uh, to have occurred before, at least a suspicion about that. Oh, as a result of psoas work?
1: yeah wow. yeah yeah okay i mean one thing oh, i want to hear more but uh, because one of the things i did when i published that chapter was spent a couple of days doing what the search did in-depth searches i could for reports of of uh you know casualties or injuries resulting from so work and could find very little in fact only found one at that time this was yeah. five years ago yeah. but no i think the potential is definitely there and i think that the mechanism you described is plausible and certainly should be considered yeah
0: yeah, and this gets back to, and I know you had said that in in your article. Yeah. This is something that I want to bring up because I think it's an important thing for us to uh, consider because this is a this is an issue. Obviously, not only in the iliopsoas work in the iliopsoas region, uh, but this is for all over the body when we talk about the potential problems that may occur with certain types of treatments. We don't really have a good reporting mechanism to report these kinds of issues, and we got, so we got Facebook. Oh, okay. I forgot about Facebook. Yeah. Okay. Twitter. Yeah. Um, you know, peaking, people can tweet their, no, their you're right. point. Well
1: taken. In fact, that's the only case yeah. I found was somebody's, uh, repeating a case they'd heard about. on. but yeah. Uh,
0: and the reason that, that, that I bring that up is that, and again, this is, I'm, I'm going to say this is anecdotal, but it gives me pause to think that this is, that I'm not the only one where this has occurred is that, Quite often for me in practice, I have had clients come to me and tell me they were hurt by somebody who did something too aggressive to them previously. And I asked, you know, what did you do about it? Well, they said, nothing. What do I do? And there really isn't a reporting process to report those kinds of things. So I, uh, and this is another part of this, this whole long other story of why I have always been very deeply involved in the credentialing world, because I think- Um, some of these aspects of the importance of being able to document the potential problems that may occur from inappropriately applied treatments, we don't have a good mechanism to report that and get that kind of information out. So I think it occurs a lot more often than we're aware of.
1: No, you're making me think, and it's the old adage, you know, an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So just because I couldn't find any stories of people reporting injury or problems from soest doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Point well taken. I think we should scratch this whole episode right now. Let's just take it. No, but it does bring up the question of how do we, uh, you know, as practitioners, as teachers, as podcasters, talk about this responsibly. So I think uh, I'm going to give you my working hypothesis. I think I'm going to continue to talk about it, and I'm going to really emphasize the cautions. And I think, like you're doing, really emphasize the potential for harm there. So as people yeah. use that work they were trained in or maybe go learn more work, they're really aware of how yeah. and when or how not to work it.
0: Yeah. The other thing that really began to bother me about the traditional approaches to the iliopsoas work that we most that most of us learned, most of us practiced for many years. I certainly did yeah. do it this way. Um, the idea of like, you know, placing your fingertips gently on the abdomen and sort of working your way down through there, There's usually a a discussion about, like, you just move your fingers through there and then all the, you know, the underlying mesentery and everything gets out of the way so you can contact the iliopsoas. Uh And uh, I started looking at this like saying, how does that work? Uh, Like the intestines, uh, all those multiple layers Uh of soft tissues under there just say, oh, here comes those fingers for iliopsoas. Let's get out of the way. Because... You know, if you look at an, an actual abdomen and dissection, there's not much room there for that stuff to actually get out of the way. And so what that means is when we contact the iliopsoas to do work, we are pinning the intestines against that muscle. And those tissues probably won't have an issue with that in most cases. But if it you're is nice. possible.
1: Yeah, if you're and nice. They're, if and they're, they're healthy, expert. et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. yeah.
0: If you're overly aggressive or there is a condition that you're maybe not uh, so aware of, like uh, Ehler's Danlos syndrome, or something where a person has connective tissue weakness, mm. um, you could potentially cause some damage to those softer connective tissue structures that aren't meant to take that kind of of pressure so That's right. um That's a caution that, to me, doesn't get talked about uh, as often. And if you think about the biomechanics of our our work in in attempting to treat the ileosal that way, when you contact the abdomen and you're pressing through skin, subcutaneous fat, fascial layers, abdominal obliques, and all that kind of stuff, that stuff is all it's like a big, it's like four layers of blankets and you're pressing on it. And then somehow or other, you're giving a specific contact to a tissue way down under there with all this other stuff bending, yes. you know, in between your fingers. Yes. So you got a lot of stuff on there that's, that's muffling your palpatory sensitivity and your capability to really get there. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so those were a lot of the things that made me really question what I was doing there and ask the question, Hey, maybe is there some other way to do this? Um, that might get beneficial results without these potential challenges or or um, potential dangers there. all right. so
1: I'm just bookmarking there's two things in that sentence I want to hear more about. One is the other ways, of course. the other is this doing what? What is it that we're trying to accomplish even when we
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the this is the mystery of, that we talked about earlier, of attempting to, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, work the iliopsoas, whatever that means, or the common term that we hear in our field about releasing the psoas, you know. uh. What does that really mean? What does the release mean? I think in most situations, we consider that uh, something where there is a a apparent Palpatory decrease in hypertonicity of the muscle. And we say it has released. And that is, in many instances, our goal. Wow. But if you take things like, you know, postural challenge, like we were talking before, like the anterior pelvic tilt and the exaggerated lumbar lordosis, I certainly think, after, you know, looking at this for a lot of other, a lot of people, a lot of years, a lot of attempts to do this, just working the muscle alone may give some short-term changes in proprioceptive awareness and might make some improvements, but it's unlikely to produce a lasting postural change alone just with what we're doing with our manual therapy work. So it can be a piece of the puzzle, um, and it can certainly help people with certain pain complaints, but I don't think that we're going to Get in there, work somebody's iliopsoas and magically permanently change postural challenges like that. All right. So
1: now you've brought up permanent postural change. That's going to have to, that's a huge discussion. Uh, maybe the, maybe yeah, the, it, yeah, it goes to the question, do we do that anywhere? Is there any yeah. magic muscle or magic structure that does that? Who knows? But anyway, back to your point. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. with you. I agree, by the way.
0: Yeah. So um so anyway I I don't want to say there's there's not benefit in it cuz I think there can be benefit in in uh working with this and uh so um I began focusing a lot more attention on some things like muscle energy technique methods uh resistance stretching something that uh, Jules Mitchell talks a lot about in her book that we uh, addressed earlier in our stretching um episode yoga um, biomechanics yoga biomechanics is the book and she uh, mentions in there resistance stretching, which I've been playing around with a lot uh, recently and getting some really beneficial results. And essentially what that is is it's taking a muscle near its end range and then putting an eccentric load on that muscle and gradually lengthening it to its full length um, against some sort of eccentric resistance and doing that repeatedly and relatively quickly. Um, over the course of just a few seconds. This will look a lot like uh, for anybody who studied the work of Aaron Mattis and his active assisted uh, stretching uh, methods, that sort of process, relatively short stretches near the end range of motion using some uh, eccentric engagements. And I've found that to be really helpful in addressing what appears to be Psoas tightness if you like do a an evaluation procedure like the thomas test which is a common orthopedic test that's used to evaluate iliopsoas tightness and you can see some significant changes right yeah yeah so um and um until maybe remind me after we're done and we'll put that um uh, link to the thomas test in our handout as well yeah, for everybody i got to yeah. note right here that's a good- yeah, um, yeah. so that's kind of where I am with it is trying to find some ways that are, um, you know, not potentially invasive to w- run up against some of these anatomical challenges. But the other thing is it just it feels really weird for a lot of people to have you digging deep into their abdomen. And it can be more comfortable and uh, possibly less um, uh, uncomfortable for the client to to try some of these other strategies as well.
1: Yeah, that's a big factor. That's a big factor and the the comfort factor you're naming. And I like the alternatives you're presenting there to hands-on direct pressure work. Um, I'm thinking of Paul and Graham's, Paul Ingram's uh, so as, so what article from about five, six years back. And it's like a lot of his stuff. It's, it's fun. If you don't mind a little hyperbole and it's, he does, yeah. he does a really great, you know. He's very thorough as a writer, and uh, always enjoy the points he brings out. But he's so as so what gives the critiques against, you know, those kind of things. A big one being it hurts. He says you can't, you know, yeah. people don't like it. Now I would say uh, it shouldn't, and it doesn't have to, and that's not a sign mm-hmm. of success. And in fact, you know, I'll say very clearly, you shouldn't be scraping, digging, poking, prodding, or massaging even the so as. We'll yeah. See the the technique that I'm going to describe, and then I'll put that chapter in the handout and such. And I'll put, I'll go ahead and put a link into the video of that technique too. It's a waiting, you know, it's a sinking, it's a listening technique with mm-hmm. pressure secondary. And the and my sh- my own shift has I'm sorry my own uh, goal has shifted to this question. And you're like, how do we do this to the psoas? as. My goal is shifted from a mechanical effect in the psoas to, like you said, a proprioceptive effect on the psoas. The psoas is super sensitive, Liz Cook, for all the things she says. One of the things she says is you could think of it like the tongue. It's a long uh, muscle that's super sensitive, highly innervated. So that's an interesting analogy. And we wouldn't, like, get our elbow in there on someone's tongue, I don't think. We wouldn't be poking around on the tongue. But even, like you said, it's below Uh, half a dozen or so very delicate layers of structure. So as we're working through those things, it's more about a sensory or sensing experience than a mechanical differentiation. And there's good reasons. I think I'm drifting now into like, what do we need to be careful of? There's reasons to not scrape or slide or move in there, like the uh, various arterial structures you named, as well as ureters, which run parallel to the psoas on their anterior surface. And there are concerns, I know, in visceral work about strumming the psoas. And so there's stories about people, they're anecdotal as far as I know, displacing the ureter with that uh, kind of aggressive psoas work. Whether it's bruising or displacing, I don't know. But there's, yeah, something to be cautious of for sure.
0: Yeah, and one thing we haven't mentioned here too, and this was in your article um, in talking about the anatomical Um, structures and anatomical relationships there's quite a number of nerves very close adjacent to and in many instances also perforating the psoas right um where some work on those um tissues might affect neurological symptoms as well
1: beneficially or adversely you know the nerve trunks several them pass through the belly of the psoas between those layers you talked about so yeah sure maybe there's a plausible rationale for including psoas Relaxation or awareness in your work when there are neurological symptoms like sciatic pain or femoral uh, nerve pain. But there's also the potential if you're in there uh, being rough that you could uh, irritate, say, so the abdominal plexus. You're working through the place in the body that has more neurons than any other part of the body except for the brain. Your gut has more neurons than anything but your brain. And you're, like you said, you're working through that. You're probably, in spite of our old uh rationales we're probably not working around at all we're probably are pressing it up against the spine yeah yeah so it's like on the tongue through the brain pressing the the tongue that's what we're doing
0: i liked your analogy earlier of the elbow work on the tongue and i was trying to visualize like a Maybe that could be a new uh, cathartic therapy of some kind.
1: Well, I mean, we should say, yeah, that that catharsis piece is part of the SOS tradition, too, way back to Wilhelm Reich, who would deeply massage people's belly to get their emotional armor broken down in his model. And people have emotional releases. That's like it's intense. You're, you know, that it's intense to have your belly work, but there is a role in contracting and tightening there as a way to manage emotion expression of emotion
0: of course and i mean you see this throughout the animal kingdom of of the necessary evolutionary uh, essential uh necessity basically of protecting the abdomen that's just a a primal reflex in our, in our neurological system and i think that kind of goes a lot into what many of the body oriented uh, Psychotherapy uh, um practitioners focus on an emphasis, emphasize with uh, the the crucial role of of abdominal contractures um, being associated with so much um, those sort of emotional energy in many instances. So, yeah, um, or
1: like TRE, which works to fatigue or stress the psoas. you get some trembling, and people have often an emotional experience, or it resolves a kind of activation. Just models yeah. there using the psoas again. Right. Any more contraindications? We're not gonna be able to do a complete list. I think we should just, you know, acknowledge that. But any more that you wanna mention? Yeah,
0: those are the biggies for me was uh, mainly the the, um, proximity of of, um, circulatory structures and the the fact that we're pressing directly onto so many uh, abdominal viscera and and basically pinning them against the muscle, Um, you know. Even I I really believe, you know, I know some people advocate uh, moving into a sideline position and saying, you know, well, the visceral will then move away from it. But, you know, the viscera moving toward the spine, and that's right where the muscle is. So I still think you're going to be, there's just not enough room in there for everything to move away to the side. Um, I remember when I was first taught this, so I was our teacher basically gave us this visualization of of, you know, just take your fingers and just kind of, wave them through there and that sort of parts the seas of your uh, viscera getting out of the way, you know, like it'd be great if that really worked. You know, I could think of a lot of places in the body where that could be really helpful. Just uh, admit it. We're
1: pushing on the viscera up against the gut. Yeah, you're right. I remember some nice analogies. Stacey Mills, one of my early rolfing teachers said, imagine that you're feeling around in a mud puddle for broken glass. Uh-huh. So you're going to be that slow and that careful with your own yeah. fingers, not to use any pressure, not to do anything sharp or hard. And there should be no sensation, yeah. of course. Another standard safety caution is don't work above the abdomen. That getting up into the renal arteries, the arteries that you know are in the region of the pso- upper end of the psoas where they go out to the uh, kidneys. So that's kind of a classic no-go, no-go zone. Yeah. Um, uh, But all of this, and if you you know a big thumping thing you feel there, that's the artery, that's the aorta rather, and it's not meant to be massaged. In fact, yeah. the Robert Schleip, he, one thing he said is the only time that the organism, the, the animal, is used to having tactile sensation on the so as is when they're being eaten by a predator. That I means they've been eviscerated already, and so right. they're automatically going to a state of like I'm in trouble with this situation. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: So, um, well, I think we have addressed um, quite a number of pieces of this controversy of the Ilios. So is anything else that you want to um, uh, spin in there before we uh, wrap up on that for today? I just
1: I just want to say that it was a rite of passage for me, not in its intensity. And in my, I got to say, I was, I think I was 19 when I got rolfed the first time and had my SOAS worked on. And in that rolf sequence, it, it was kind of a buildup to that session where that happens and it was a sort of passage and it wasn't intense in a like rough way at all he was very delicate but to feel that sensation of the legs connected to my spine was a kind of revelation and that Mm -hmm. is still i think i still i was impacted by that enough that that's still what i look to bring to my clients when i decide that it's appropriate and all these cautions have been followed just that sense that wow my legs are actually connected to my spine it's a good yeah,
0: revelation. I think, too, and we've uh, touched on this in a number of different topics of just really talking about uh, in terms of our goals of treatment oftentimes seem to, at least this is true for me, and I think you've said similar uh, things, too, that oftentimes our goals of treatment focus a great deal more on proprioceptive awareness of mm-hmm. uh, uh, and I have had a lot of similar kinds of sensations of thinking like, oh, wow, that is really wild to feel that. And knowing something about anatomy of where some things are connected or brought together. But for the person who's sort of experiencing some of those things in their body, that can be a real fascinating kind of revelation. And, and increased proprioceptive awareness can have all kinds of potential benefits. Um, That's so That's uh, great. Yeah. A number of different ways to get there. Well,
1: uh, wrap up time, you think?
0: Yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll call that a wrap on this discussion for today. And maybe some other good questions or comments will come out of that of things that we want to address with with other people going down the road uh, afterwards. So uh, we would like to today thank uh, ABMP, who's a proud sponsor of the Thinking Practitioner podcast. Uh, note all massage therapists and body workers can access free ABMP resources and information on the coronavirus and the massage profession at abmp.com forward slash COVID-19, including sample release forms, PPE guides, and a special issue of Massage and Body Work magazine where Till and I are frequent contributors. And for more, check out the ABMP podcast available at abmp.com forward slash podcast or wherever you prefer to listen.
1: Yep. Thanks to them and to our other sponsors. Come on by our uh, websites for the for that handout we mentioned. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. so It's going to be there in both of our websites too. You can also get a transcript of the uh, episode. And there's a bunch of extras there. What's your site, Whitney?
0: They can also find stuff uh, from us over at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can they find out more uh, about you as Our well. site,
1: advanced-trainings.com, advanced-trainings.com. Uh, email us about questions or topics, things you'd like to hear about, your complaints about us broadcasting about the psoas, your congratulations, whatever you want to send us. We love to hear about it. The email to get reach both of us, info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us individually on social media. I'm at at Tiluka. How about you, Whitney?
0: And I'm also there at uh, at Whitlow. I can uh, be found there. And you can also follow us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you happen to be uh, listening to your podcast, if it's a Walkman or whatever your um, device is that you're doing these days. So Thanks very much uh, also to all of our listeners. We really appreciate your hanging around with us. Uh, Tell a friend, share the news, and uh, let us know what else you'd like to hear about. So, um, until great talking about this today, and I'll look forward to uh, chatting with you some more again in a couple of weeks.
1: Thank you, Whitney. I'm going to dig out my tin can and a string and see if I can hear the podcast over that. Thanks for the conversation today. You
0: bet. Sounds good. We'll talk again soon.